Hi, this is Frank Menzer. Whether you play Moldvay or My Edition or any other basic D&D, tune in next for Save or Die Basic D&D. We don't want to give monkeys a bad name. <laughs> Their sterling reputation. We shall not denigrate the poop flingers. Okay. That's right. <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, welcome to Save or Die, episode 111, Save versus Redbox D&D. This is DM Jim, substitute lead hosting for DM Mike. Taco. <laughs> and I'm joined by DM Liz. Hello, hello. And we've got a very special musical comedy D&D guest with us, Mr. Mikey Mason. Anal monkey fisting. <laughs> but you said I could say it. Get it right out of your system, sir. <laughs> he did say you could say it out. I'm just saying. <laughs> and the bar has been lowered. Let's do this. <laughs> My granny always said better out than in. <laughs> Especially, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> to the abyss we go. Your, your grandmother sounds like a remarkable woman, Jim. She's into real estate now. Okay. <laughs> Get it? <laughs> oh. In into never mind. Ah, uh, ancient uh, comedy master, but I'm Ching. Maybe yep. maybe I should leave the comedy to the comedian. <sighs> no, don't leave me stranded, dude. <laughs> I don't want to be left alone. Hey, we're here to make him look really good in comparison. Hey, can I be, can I Yo. be DM Mikey? Because I have been uh, DMing for what is it? It's 2016. Wow, for 36 years I've been DMing. You realize be- on, on this podcast that still makes you a youngin. Oh, well, that's fine, but I'm honorary <laughs> DM Mikey, right? I can be an ensign DM Mikey. Can- <laughs> <laughs> I'm cool with that. You can absolutely be DM Mikey. Mikey. Yeah, sure. Rock on. Let's do Although this. I- I do think it's still 2015, though, not 2016. Well, then it's only 35 years. I lose my Oh, well, that does it there, right? Yeah. <laughs> Done. Damn, last year. Well, uh, I think we have some emails, except this episode we're going to do voicemails. Is that correct, email queen, DM Liz? That is correct. Okay. And you're in charge of that, too. You are all powerful this episode. <laughs> <laughs> get down, get down. Save or Die email hot tub time machine. Come here, you scrumptious little beauty. Here I go once again with the email. Every week I hope that it's from a female. Oh, man. All right, well, let's start with the uh, voicemails that we can actually understand, since we have a troublesome 
voicemail uh, with Mr. DM Kojo. Hey guys, this is DM Kojo calling. I just wanted to call in and thank you for your episode 107, Temple of Death. I really enjoyed it. I busted out the module from my boxes and followed along with you and really gained an appreciation for it that I didn't have before, the artwork and the writing both. It was really well done, and I've never run it, but I've uh, owned it for a long time, and uh, I definitely want to try to run this and its uh, predecessor, X4, sometime soon. But I also have a request for you guys, being that Zeb Cook was so pivotal in so many areas of D&D, and I know the Thacko's Hammers guys had him on for an interview recently uh, to talk about his contributions to 2nd Edition, which were fantastic and was actually my first exposure to um, his work at large. But uh, obviously he's um, very pivotal with the expert uh, rules set in the BX game, co-authoring the Isle of Dread and these X4, X5 adventures that he wrote, among other things. So I was hoping that you guys might be able to get an interview with him, being that uh, the Thagos Hammers guys tracked him down, and uh, it would be great to hear his uh, take on things from uh, the BX perspective of things and the adventures that he wrote for that that rule set. So just a small request, but uh, hopefully you guys can make it happen. Keep up the great work, and we'll talk to you later. Thanks, Gojo. I think we should totally do that because Mike loves to have the author on while we review something they've written. So we can have him on for one of the X modules he wrote. I think it'd be great to have Zeb Cook on if he'd be willing to come on the show. Yeah, if we just had had enough time to breathe at North Texas RPG Con, we probably could have actually grabbed him. But, you know, I'll get a hold of the Thaco's Hammer guys or... You know, I'm sure we can find his email address somewhere, and we'll send an invite. Now, whether he agrees to come on or not, who knows? But you know, but we'll do it shot. just for you, Kojo. Well, let's do another voicemail. Our next voicemail is from Raul, who's known on most of the forums as Angelic Doc. Greetings, classicists. This is DM Raul, or Angelic Doctor, on the forums. I've got a question for you. Let's talk adventures. How do you go about creating your own adventures, knowing that the classic D&D is a a lot more free-form and freewheeling than later versions? There really isn't some sort of set way to make adventures. So if I could pick each and every one of your brains and find out your approach, is one of you more methodical in your approach? Do you take time out to outline in a complete adventure, complete with NPCs and encounters and set pieces and so on and so forth? Or are you more the free-form, free-wheeling, let the players guide me where I go, and there we shall go? Let me know your thoughts on the matter. Give me some tips and ideas. I'd like to hear your thoughts on all of this. Thank you very much, and have a fun gaming. Thanks, Angelic Doctor. Yeah. Yeah, I want to say that as far as what I do, usually I start out with a idea and then I'll just brainstorm from there and write down all different kinds of stuff that could come from that central idea. Um, and I do make an outline, but it's very rough. It's not a just hugely 
in, intricate sort of thing with all the NPCs and everything. I just have a rough outline of, okay, this is the problem. This is what the solution is going to turn out to be. And here are some major plot points that would be cool to get to if the players go in that direction. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's pretty much all that I do. Yeah, I'm very similar. I at least have an outline up ready to go. I, especially when it comes to like wandering monsters or NPC encounters, I usually, you know, do that on the fly to what seems more appropriate. I mean, it's not like you're coming out of the tavern and there's a dragon. Yeah, no, <laughs> that that doesn't generally work unless it's City State of the Invincible Overlord. Then you know, okay, sure, that that sort of things to be expected there. I remember reading. When I was uh, doing module work for Trollord Games, we had a copy of one of Gary Gygax's dungeons that he had uh, put together, his notes from it, Teeth of the Barkash Noor. And Bill Sylvie and I were looking it over to try to see about how to make it publishing. And it was literally like Area 1, Sand, Giant Crab, 6 HD, 300 gold pieces. That was it. <laughs> That was literally it. And we just had to go, okay, now where is this? How can we describe this? Because, you know, he knew what he meant to have there. And that's, I put a little more info than that, but not much more when I'm writing my own home games. That is when I'm not stealing sections of other modules and then I just, you know, pull them and run from there. Creativity is the art of concealing one's sources. (laughs) Right. Yeah, pretty much. Good artists borrow, great artists steal. Yeah. So, Mikey, what, where do your ideas come from? Um, they come from everywhere. Uh, basically, it depends on the the, the players that I'm I'm playing with. Um, I like to uh, I like settings and I like to evoke moods. And uh, I don't want to railroad uh, my players, um, so I don't let them know they're being railroaded. But I uh, <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I I come up with an overall plot arc. Uh, most players that I've I, I've played with don't really want a whole complete sandbox. They want you to have something going on, and if you can get them to interact and pick up on any of the threads and, and follow their own way, then as a GM, uh, GM, a DM, you you run with that. But I have NPCs and things going on in my head, and I will write them down, not because I need them written down, but because that's how I'll remember it. If I write it down, I, I am 20 times more likely to never need that note. So... Um, I'll write down what uh, a, a rough timeline of what I think is going to go on, what's going to happen if the players do nothing to stop it, uh, the way uh, certain other NPCs will react. And then once it's written down, you know, it's, it's there in front of me to reference if I need it, although if I, if I do need it, um, it's, it's rare. Um, and usually when I reference it, it's to change it because of something the players did changed the way one of the NPCs will react or whatever, or they've already insulted that NPC, and so he joins <laughs> the other side or whatever. <laughs> but well, uh, I, I think that's good because a lot of DMs I've met in the past have this have their adventure laid out like, well, the PCs have to do A for B to happen or C for D to happen, and I I think more DMs need to have a a timeline set up of this is what's going to happen. If the PCs aren't involved, well, it's going to happen anyway, but, you know. Right. If, the, if there's a plot, I mean, if there's a plot, 
uh, if they, the PCs are trying to accomplish something, that's one thing. But if they're in a sandbox game, generally their role is going to be reactive and interactive. Um, proactive PCs are generally either treasure hunters or villains. Mm. <laughs> so Drunken murder hobos. Or or they've been hired by somebody to do something, in which case that's that even that is a reactive uh, position for a PC to be in. So I try and make sure that I know what the NPCs are doing so that I can be prepared that if 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 the players don't react, if they don't interact, this is what happens, and that trains your players to react, to interact, to keep things that they don't want to happen from happening. My advice is to think as much as possible like a writer, and by that, what I try and do is just pay really close attention to what's going on around me all the time and keep a little notebook in my head, and then things will happen. Where uh, a, a player in my group this weekend couldn't make it because he had to go to an ex-girlfriend's wedding, and we're like, well, that's awkward, and then he starts telling the whole story, and there's exes of exes and in-laws and everybody going, and he says it's going to be a real gaggle fest, and suddenly I'm like... That's a dungeon room, the great goblin gaggle fest, where the players <laughs> players roll in on a goblin wedding, where they've got like the tradition called the gauntlet of exes, and got a whole idea just out of us having a normal conversation. <laughs> the gauntlet of exes. Yeah, I'm wow. totally stealing that. Like like Klingons, right? You have to the the wedding party has to walk through the gauntlet to <laughs> get married. All of your prior almost permanent mates. <laughs> oh look, they've so, got a sword arch. It's not an arch. <laughs> so and what level adventure would this be in? <laughs> I was just think I just have it stored right now as a spare dungeon room the next time somebody asks me cuz it's funny, uh the Eldritch guys asked me to jump in and supply one dungeon room to the Gary Con adventure they were writing and it just happened to be after I'd written a whole bunch of stuff and the idea drawer was empty and I'm like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And suddenly I went, just write a room where you set the players on fire over and over again and that you know <laughs> then i had a fire elemental and an orc pyromancer and all kinds of explosives so put it out set people on fire that's yes. right <laughs> that's a, well wonder. just to be clear they're characters on fire right, right? not the players on fire it depends on if you've got a problem player <laughs> well, yeah okay like george I like George. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally not wearing not wearing my uh, not George guitar pick. I meant to have that on for the podcast. Uh, I'm not wearing mine either. My 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 strap broke on mine. I I have to get my wife to replace that. She's the one who made it. So it's audio. You're both wearing them. Trust yes, them. trust them. I have it right now. It's my talisman of plus four charisma. <laughs> No? Okay. Cast audible glamour. <laughs> so do we have problem do we have a problem one to go to? A problem voicemail to go we, to? We have a problematic voicemail in that this uh listener who cannot be identified because of the quality of the voicemail did exactly as instructed and left us a voicemail. <laughs> our, our voicemail phone number and Google voicemail screwed it up, but I have salvaged and enhanced what of it I could. So let's try and give it a listen. Think necessary. What type of personality do you think make up a very good on gaming group? And also, inversely, what personalities make up a bad gaming group? Whether it's an evil cleric or a goody two shoes. So, I'm looking forward to your answer. Thank. So, thank you, mystery caller. <laughs> 
Yeah. So um, what personalities make up a good gaming group and a bad gaming group? Was that the question it sounded like? Yeah, but it sounded like he was talking about uh, character personalities as opposed to player personalities. And when he first yeah. said that, my, respond, my, my guttural response was player personalities. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> what makes a good gaming group? Well, it helps if they all bring snacks. Um. <laughs> yes. Bribe the GM with food and libation. Can't go wrong that way. As far as personalities go, the first thing that are characters first thing that popped into my head is i don't allow any evil alignments in my games um or cha- chaotic says it you know if you're going to go through three tier alignment so seriously if it's three three alignment they can't be chaotic well not if they're going to play evil play it evilly as the the direction they're going then no yeah, I, yeah. I dealt with that back in high school and not in my preference with it with an unknown if i don't know the players personally they're all going to be of the same tier so if it's a three-tier alignment they're all going to be lawful or neutral or chaotic and probably not chaotic um or if there's the the nine tier then they're all going to be either good which is my preference because it's easier to manipulate those especially if i don't know those players uh or neutral or evil but they're not going to be a mix because with players I don't know, that's a recipe for a bad game. Yeah. Players I do know, it doesn't matter. Well, all right. It just depends on whether you trust the players to interact and what kind of game you want because sometimes you can have great games that don't follow your plot at all that are a result of your players playing off each other. And as a DM, you just sit back and let them kill each other. Or not, or plot against each other, you know, and and <laughs> even if it's just surreptitiously or subversively against each other, um, and you can create some uh, great undercurrents, great uh, character arc dynamics by allowing those things. But you have to have players you can trust, genuinely trust. That's uh, an important component. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember when I was running a game like that back in the eighties, uh, before I put my no evil rule in. Um, one guy was playing a lawful evil character, and he wrote me a note and passed it to me behind the GM screen. And I opened the note up and says, and it said, nothing. I just want to see what the other players' reactions are going to be for this. I was that player, man. I was. <laughs> and then suddenly the notes started flying. Oh, yes, they do. <laughs> People get, oh, the paranoia flies, man. <laughs> and here's the reality of the situation. It doesn't matter whether the character is lawful good or lawful evil. The player is chaotic neutral. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Somebody who agrees with me. You, uh, you know, so you've got, to, you've got to use some control. You have, as, a, as the DM, you have the right to enjoy the game as much as everybody else does. Um, so you have the right to say, look, you're either going to uh, – Find a way to work together in some metagame capacity, or you're all going to be of lawful or all lawful or all of the good alignments or whatever, uh, or somebody else is going to have to, you know, DM. <laughs> dude, dude, you are preaching to the choir. Um, my DM philosophy is to always say yes to the players, but I reserve the right to drop the hammer anytime I please, and I had to do it last night because my nephew, who it's, it's not 
it wasn't helped by the fact that he's a serial contrarian. It's just his native personality. The best thing I could say about him is he's not as bad as his dad, my brother. But he sits down and he's he's already making friends at the table. He just joined the group last night, and uh, we did the thing where we introduced the characters. They're out in the middle of the jungle. I'm like this, you know, this mutant guy dressed like your tribe pops out of the jungle and one of my players started up with the whole okay we're going to maybe attack this guy or not and i just dropped the hammer and said no we're not because they were they were uh immediately before a potential tpk that i put at the entrance to the dungeon so yeah. there was serious business to attend to then half an hour of them deciding whether or not they were going to kill each other look there there's a there's a time for role play and there's a time for meta and then some role play and uh that that situation where you you want them all to be on the same side is where you say, look, figure out how that person's going to incorporate into your group and then role play that out. But you've got to script it a little bit because we're not going to have this turn south because somebody drops a word during the parlay that changes his opinion and now he's going to attack. That is not going to happen in this scenario or else a lot of people will die suddenly from falling trees in the jungle and you guys will go and watch a movie or something. <laughs> well, you can't say out loud, hey, listen, you're going to need that guy to retrieve your body in about 10 minutes, so be, no, be nice to him. No, say that That will convince them, and that's what will yeah. convince them. Players are uh, selfish by nature, and by that I mean that they, they, they want a good game for them. They may not want a good game for everybody at the table, but at the very least, they want a good game for them. And if you tell them that uh, – and most players don't think that dying in 10 minutes is going to be a good game. <laughs> so if you tell most. them you're going to need him to retrieve your character's corpse and make sure he, they get rezzed, they'll, that character will now be accepted. Some metagaming will happen, my brother. <laughs> One caveat. Yes. There is the type of player I'm sure we've all run into whose idea of fun – is mixing, messing with everything. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't mind those... dying as long as he does it in a way and it really screws everybody up. You know, and that's. We call those that leaders. guy we used to game with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, I don't game with him anymore either. Uh, unless, unless your group is, ha- has fun with that. Because, I mean, some groups have fun with that. I've had fun with groups like that, but those people should play Paranoia, mm-hmm. is what those people yeah. should be playing. Oh, yeah. And that's usually the kind of thing I'm more likely to do if I'm playing in a convention, you know, and this is a one-shot character, it's a one-shot game, and I'm much more likely to take risks in a convention game than I am with a regular, you know, group. You know, so, hey, Enchanted Pools, I'll drink one and see what happens, you know, I'm... Oh yeah, much more but, likely to do that at a convention than normally. <laughs> but you don't. You don't say you know, as everybody's looking at the enchanted pool, suddenly start kicking other party members to fall well, in. No, <laughs> I mean, depends on one of the happens. other players. Is that guy? <laughs> well, okay, yeah, that guy. <laughs> Bob the cleric is really getting on my nerves. Let's see what happens if I push him into the pool. <laughs> nope, nope, way over. He's a healer. We got to keep Bob. <laughs> <laughs> At least until he's out of cures. That's right. And then, and then we make Bob drink the pool. <laughs> Mikey, man, I'm going to write a song called Best Guest Ever. Because you have you on and you start expressing all the hard-ass DMing opinions I normally, I have, I normally self-edit so we don't get a lot of emails. 
I have no problem saying that. Uh, it, I, and I agree that there, is, there are as many problem DMs as there are problem players. My perspective is primarily that of a DM, and I deal with a lot of problems from a wide variety of players. And, uh, and, and a lot of – I prepare for a lot of problems that never happen because I'm insecure as a person. And so I imagine that everybody is just going to be out to get me. And so I play out all these elaborate scenarios where I hate the players and want to kill their characters. <laughs> But it's all in my head because that never happens because players, by and large, people turn out to be pretty decent when you give them the opportunity. Um, <laughs> uh, and most problems can be solved with communication. And if you do the communication beforehand, most people are cool. And the people who are going to be a problem will get up and walk out of the room. And then all of a sudden, there's no longer a problem. So the Wheaton rule, in effect. Oh, yeah. Don't be a dick. Yep. Well, I'm sure that. The answers to that email will generate many more. If someone wished to write the podcast an email, where would they send that email to? This is my favorite part. I get to do it finally to <gasps> Mike. SaverDiePodcast at gmail.com. Now, I hope somebody knows the phone number because I don't. Liz? 940-536-3763. I never know the phone number. Never ask me the phone number. <laughs> I know the email address. I do not know the phone number for the voicemail. Hey, it took me a year to get that memorized, so I didn't have to keep looking at notes. I just remember when you go, three sod. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want us to actually hear the voicemail, you could actually just record and send us an MP3. <laughs> Which is what Angelic Doctor did, and it came out really clear. Because Google sucks. <laughs> All right, we'll be right back after the short commercial break and interview Mikey Mason. Thopus the Gnome here. The Save or Die podcast is brought to you in part by a more than generous grant from me. <clears throat> Don't you mean a generous grant by Lesser Gnome Games? Same thing. I pretty much run the joint. And this one too now, come to think of it. Here. Go finish the commercial for me, Knave. You got it. Lesser Gnome Games and Miniatures. Available at RPGnow.com, LesserGnome.com, or at a friendly local game store near you. Are you enjoying the show you're listening to right now? Want to help support the show? Why not head over to the Patreon site, patreon.com slash WGP. That's patreon.com slash WGP. And help support the network for as little as $1.50 a month. That's right, a dollar fifty a month goes a long way. Thank you. So DM Mikey, for yes. those Philistines out there somewhere in our uh, listening audience that don't know who you are. <laughs> those lucky few. <laughs> I mean you, you play gigs at our game store twice a year, so I know who I, you are. I play gigs a lot of places. I just got back from Johnson City, Tennessee. I drove that eight hour drive today. Uh, I left at 7.30 this morning, so I'd be here in time to set up. Ooh. Ouch. Thank you, you, sir. Guys, you know, Because <laughs> I've been waiting to be on. We've been planning this. I've been asking forever. When you told me, yes, I canceled the recording of my own podcast, <laughs> which would have been scheduled for tonight, to be wow. here. I recorded a different podcast. Uh, you know, a different I, – I rescheduled. I recorded it on Wednesday got the guys together and it's a beer drinking podcast so we had to day drink i day drank on a wednesday for you three <laughs> your sacrifice is appreciated <laughs> just saying <laughs> so 
But besides a day drinker, you're a professional stand-up comic as well as a YouTube musical sensation. <laughs> well, sensation's passionate, but uh, I'm trying. Uh, I'll be getting some more videos out hopefully before the end of this summer. Uh, that's my goal. But yeah, my, my, my job is telling jokes to middle America. It's telling dick jokes. My goal is my job is telling dick jokes to middle. My goal is to tell slightly more intellectual dick jokes to geeks. But um, that's you know that's the that's the step. I'm moving slowly towards doing more and more geek comedy at conventions across America. But in the meantime, I've been playing uh, full time stand up comedian, musical comedian in comedy clubs and bars and rest areas, bowling alleys, movie theaters across America. Yeah, you're. Music. I have several of your albums, though, has a very high nerd content. Uh, well, that's the that's the geek stuff. Yeah, I'm working on the fifth geek album right now. But I also have stuff that I, I refer to as my white trash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I listened to that last night on YouTube. Uh, I apologize. <laughs> no, don't. As someone who grew up in a trailer, <laughs> I fully appreciate it. In Mississippi, oh, I that- I fully appreciated it. Well, it's like you were singing directly to him. <laughs> hey, my my ex wife carried into it, man. She was nouveau trash, you know. Oh yeah. man. <laughs> Sorry. See, that it's wouldn't okay. be blue blood. What would it be? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Regular red blood. Whatever, whatever your own family's blood running in. Never mind. Commingling <laughs> in your veins is. I don't know. That ain't funny, is it, sis? <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're going to do a top five of Redbox D&D, which is another reason we had you on the show, because I happen to know, uh, because we're friends, that you started with Redbox D&D, and uh, I thought we'd begin the show with you uh, favoring us with a tune. Oh, I'll definitely do that. Every, every word of this song is true. This is I, For a guy who doesn't do a lot of parodies, and I say that a lot, I say I don't do a lot of parodies. For a guy who says he doesn't do a lot of parodies, I do a lot of parodies. So um, <laughs> I actually... I, I, I'm try, I've, uh, I consciously veer away from parodies, but this is one that is near and dear to my heart. Um, every word of this is true, uh, and you'll, you'll recognize the song as soon as it gets started. I got my first D20, came in red box D&D, colored numbers in with a crayon, was the summer of 83. Me, my brother, this kid named Terry, played the game in my front yard. Seventh grade, Terry found girls and left the game when his weenus got hard. Boy, oh, when I look back now, that summer seemed to last forever. Boy, oh, and if I had the choice, hell yeah, I'd always want to be there. Those were the best games of my life. It didn't stop me from gaming I kept it up all through high school Spent my evenings behind a DM screen Slinging dice and drinking Mountain Dew, yeah Hanging out and slaying orcs Killing wandering mobs for treasure Pouring in those dungeon crawls Boss fights that seem to last forever Those were the best games that I'd seen since the summer of 83, your red box day and day. Well, 
not changing A lot of gaming friends have come and gone Sometimes I break out my DM screen I look at LARP, I wonder what went wrong <laughs> With hanging out and slaying orcs Waiting for some guy to roll for treasure Oh, and I still dungeon crawl But my games these days are so much better These are the best games that I'll see Thanks to the summer Freebird. Awesome. Freebird. <laughs> Freebird. Uh, sorry, had to be had to be said. No, no, it really didn't. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the first gamer podcast with live music. Thank you. <laughs> no. <laughs> the first episode of Save or Die with, with live, live music. music. There we go. I know for a fact I've done live music on other gaming podcasts. I, I, I can't wear white. I'm sorry. I'll wear blood red if I'm going to go through the gauntlet of X's. Um, <laughs> it's okay. You had me feeling like Johnny Carson. Now I'm down to Jimmy Fallon. It's okay. <laughs> I like Jimmy Fallon, man. <laughs> Thank you for that performance. Oh, yeah, that was great. Well, better than the Brian Adams version, honestly. But <laughs> oh, well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, uh, um, I did start with Redbox D&D. Um, I, uh, on, oh, was it my, uh, my fourth album, Dodecahedron, on the inside, there's a picture of the wax dice that came with, with those <laughs> boxes. The, char- the, boxes I ro- the, the dice I rolled my first character with, there's a satellite view of the actual porch in the trailer park. The, the concrete slab porch that I rolled my first characters on. Dude. Um, yeah. Cause, uh, and then uh, earlier this summer when we buried my mother, um, we, uh, I drove my, my wife and youngest son out to that trailer park and drove him past. The, the very first trailer I ever played Dungeons & Dragons in is still there. It, my sister was renting it, but it's still there 30-some-odd years later. I I'm bad at math, and we haven't figured it out. Oh, we said it's 30, 35 years later. It's still there. Um, I guess it was 33 years later. Um, but anyway, uh, so I've not been gaming as long as I said. I'm a liar. That's what I'm getting at. <laughs> I'm, I'm an unreliable narrator. All I'm saying is I'm bad at math. Shut up. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> but... Uh, but yeah, so uh, and then I took him past that porch and said, "That's for." And I game with my my young. I game with both my sons. So um, cool. And to to say, look right there, look out the window. You can go stand on that porch if you want to. And he said, "No, not really. I'm good." <laughs> <laughs> and in the uh, in the dodecahedron, uh, the CD cover, or sorry, the actual print on the CD has. Uh, a version of my very first character that I rolled up ever. His, he was an elf, and his name was Tran. Um, and it's got the stats on it as well. So Nice. There you- well, this is probably a good place to mention to listeners that we'll be uh, dropping links to Mikey's homepage and Bandcamp. You mean MikeyMason.com? Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. Now get over there and buy one of everything. <laughs> Only one? No, I'm just kidding. They make excellent gifts, by the way. They do. It's true. <laughs> 
listen, uh, you can go to, uh, when you go there, you'll, you'll get a link to my Bandcamp site, and uh, you can either buy hard copies of the disc or, or digital copies. But the reality is that uh, you should listen to it and see if it's something you'd like. And then buy – if you don't like everything, don't buy everything. That's the, the genius of today. You can buy it uh, on iTunes. You can listen to it on Spotify if you want. It's on Spotify. So um, the best thing you can do for me if you like what I'm doing isn't necessarily to buy anything, though I, I won't argue. Remember my name and tell your friends about me. That's the best thing you can do. So, What about 8-track? I don't have anything on 8-track or oh. vinyl. Um, but I have been converting some cassettes uh, as some bonus material to my latest album, Red letters to the people who pre-ordered it digitally before July 20th. Those folks will get uh, a collection of songs that I recorded in college that are neither funny nor good, but um, <laughs> nor well recorded. But they'll get them uh, because <laughs> you because asked I, for it, you'll get it. <laughs> because I promised. Uh, <laughs> You're welcome. You'll notice that I did not become rich or famous from these songs. There's a reason. <laughs> <laughs> yet not yet yet mm. well since we're going to do a show about Redbox D&D and you have experience with that this sounds like a good time to move to our top five top five the save or die top five in five four three two do we have a bumper Yes. Do we need, do we need a bumper? Oh, okay. Excellent. <laughs> I was going to like, let's make up a bumper. We'll do this live. But the bumper totally ends in a Godzilla roar if you'd like to come in with your own Godzilla roar. <laughs> Dude, that's a pretty good Godzilla roar. I practice. <laughs> oh, well, crap. <laughs> <laughs> Every day in front of the mirror. <laughs> well, I do. I think, I think I'm no. liking this having performing artists on. You just ask them to do something and they do it. I'm just saying. <laughs> DM Mike, that's not in front of a mirror, brother. That's my O face. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and that's how Save or Die became a not safe for work podcast. Hey, <laughs> until they look up O face, you're clean. <laughs> or watch Office Space, yeah. <laughs> anyway. So, By O face, I mean, oh my God, I just rolled a natural 20. That's right. Oh, there you go. Okay. Yeah, that, that, yeah. We saved. What else we didn't could die. he have meant? <laughs> no, nothing. He nothing. saved for half damage. It's my orc face. My <laughs> orc face. <laughs> anyway. And that's where half orcs come from. <laughs> what were we talking about on the show? Oh, yeah. Uh, top five? Top, top five. five. Red box <laughs> you see, when an orc and a halfling love each other, ah! someone gets hurt. Uh <laughs> Bad. Or like last episode with Arduin about the hobbits with the kobolds <laughs> and the hobbits. <laughs> They're the same size. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who, who's that one guy on Dragon's Foot, Mike? Uh, Iron Face? Iron Face. If you heard that joke, we meant it in jest. We all love Arduin. <laughs> love it, love it, love it. Okay. Why does that kobold have furry feet? <laughs> <laughs> it's technical. I just have a mental image of instead of smoking afterwards, they're both like, you know, snarfing pastries or something. (laughs) Well, one will be snarfing pastries, the other raw meat. (laughs) Either way, it's going to happen in a big hole. Ah. Wow. 
Wow. <laughs> that could be taken so many ways, and you were mad about O-Face. Okay, ah, gotcha. <laughs> you pulled me in. What can I say? I'm not yeah, going there. Never wrong. Blame the guest. Yeah. Top five. We're supposed to do a top five. Who's going to start? Yeah, because yeah, Liz. Why don't this, you kick us off on the top five? On this show, we don't just have you on as a guest. We put you to work too. So, uh, <laughs> apparently, somebody's got to moderate this thing. DM Liz. <laughs> <laughs> kick us off, Liz. What's your number five? All right. Well, okay. My number five. I I thought it was kind of um sad that. They felt that they had to point out that the player and the character are two different people. <laughs> of course, you know, with everything going on at the time, they kind of had to cover their butts by doing that. But yeah, you know, page 52 of the player, you know, book, you know, they've got a little heading, you know, players and characters are two different people. It's like, okay, right. thanks. You will, <laughs> on no circumstances. He summons Satan. Right. Yes. Well, it's very reactionary to the DM, uh, the D and D Satan craze yeah. that they were trying to do, and and I can totally see that. And it's the same reason why they say uh, when they're talking about the magic, they say you're not going to actually be casting spells. We're just, yeah, you know, <laughs> stuff that you would normally think this is kind of self evident, but they felt that you know they had to put that in so that. People didn't try to, you know, burn them all at the stake somewhere. And, you know, I also think that that was probably, you know, a reaction to the Mazes and the Monsters, Monsters book yeah. and the movie with, you know, you've got Tom Hanks going insane thinking that he really is his D&D character. It's that like, movie no, could never happen today. People. No. <laughs> For two well, reasons, that movie could never happen today. And both of them are in poor taste. So I'll move on. Speaking of which. <laughs> well, Tom Hanks is kind of old now. So, I'm just saying he's out of their pay scale too. But <laughs> speaking of which, uh, I remember seeing a Kickstarter one time. Somebody was trying to do a movie version of Dark Dungeons, the Jack Chick tract. That yeah, yeah, yeah. That totally got made. It, it did? did. Yep. Crap! I gotta get a copy. That's awesome. Blackleaf, no. <laughs> well, well, Mike, since you stuck your head up, <laughs> <laughs> what's your number five? Again, showing my age here. I was really disappointed it didn't come with a module. I mean, it came I understand with an adventure. Yeah, but it wasn't really a module. You're right. They, they <laughs> okay, I'll be uh, honest. It wasn't Keep on the Borderlands. And that just... <laughs> yeah. Right. Keep on the Borderlands was in the uh, 1980 basic set, and then they booted it out of this one. Which, on a side note, I had no idea that um, there was only one red box. I always referred to both Mulvey and Menser's red box, but I got schooled on that. Apparently, Mulvey is considered the magenta, magenta box. box. Yeah. <laughs> so, look, I fit in with you guys. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the geeking right now. <laughs> it's good oh, to the might of his nerd foo. <laughs> it's no small thing because sometimes we chew a guest up. You're doing great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, excellent. And now it's your turn. Oh, is it? Okay. Uh, my number five is the simplicity of the system. Um, demi-humans are their own class. The rules are very pared down. I mean, uh, AD&D first edition, uh, that convoluted mess of rules came out in like sometime – it was 
trickled out between 77 and 79. Mm-hmm. And the first edition of the basic rules came out in 80. So this the reissue, reissue of the basic rules, uh, the first edition of the basic rules, from what I understand, the Moldvay rules, uh, were aimed specifically at children. And this was more uh, uh, simplistic but aimed at young adults mm-hmm. uh, and an introduction. And I think that that simplicity is possibly the red box's greatest strength but still only comes in at number five on my list excellent okay. I, I i'm not gonna lie when when it first came out and we were all hardcore ad and deers and i'm i'm older than you guys we thought of basic dnd as the babies dnd oh sure that was our look at it i know i obviously no longer feel that way it's a great rule set i mean it's a waiting pool compared to the deep end of first edition you know, <laughs> yeah. it's not even the shallow end of the pool. It's the waiting pool. I, well, I just understand more as a, an adult and somebody who actually writes these things. So my number five is it is without question the very first version of D&D ever published that you could actually buy off the shelf and learn to play yourself. Yeah. With nobody showing you how to play. You had a chance with Menser, Frank Menser's version of D&D. Yeah. As, as Liz pointed out, he explains everything to you. This is true. And he, he even says in the you know beginning of the book, you know, it's recommended that you read this by yourself, you know, as opposed to it's like you can learn with a group if someone already knows, but you know, all of the new players should really read these instructions, you know, to themselves, you know, rather than having it read to them, you know. So Frank was okay, very I was- much a believer in, you know, hands on, you know, do it yourself, get in there. Okay, I was gonna quibble with you, Jim, but because um, I kind of think Moldvay is pretty good too, but like you said, learning it by yourself, even Moldvay doesn't do that. You right. know, it's it's totally you know Menzer is talking to just one person. I mean, Jim Ward made the point when we had him on the podcast because somebody had written an email. What's your favorite version of Basic D and D? And Liz said Holmes, and you and I said Mulvey Cook. And then when Jim Ward came in, he had that whole analogy about how he, from his point of view, Holmes was like a Model T, and Mulvey Cook was like a Studebaker. And when you get to Frank, Frank has brought all the evolving game mechanics to Basic D and D. And Liz didn't hit him. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I like Jim Ward. I like him a lot. Okay, and I will be the first to admit. The Holmes Basic Rules set has some warts on it, but I still think you really cannot beat five-point alignment system. It's like the sweet spot in between your three-point and your nine-point. Just happy medium right there. That's all right, love. I love you anyway. (laughs) I love you too, even though you're wrong. (laughs) So Liz, what's... Liz, I hate alignment systems of all kinds. They shouldn't exist. They're a bad idea, and they only lead to arguing. The players are going to do whatever they want and justify it however they want, so why put a name to it? We must be related, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> and we probably should have had you on as well when we were talking about, talking about alignments. Because <laughs> <laughs> Arwen <laughs> didn't really get a whole lot into alignments either, I don't think. But it's, 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 it's the truth. A player, yeah. a creative player with an ounce of creative juice, will do whatever the hell they want and justify it later. And when you say a character of your alignment wouldn't do that, they will have uh, a, a numbered list of reasons why, from weakest to strongest, why they, and, and in conclusion, my player, or my character wouldn't do that That's because right. blah, blah, blah. And by then, you're just worn down. You're like, just rob the bank, you lawful paladin. <laughs> why don't you go to law school with that? <laughs> yeah. Wow, you... you- have a higher level of player. Normally, when I do that stuff, they go, "You suck as a DM." <laughs> That's You're their big argument. No. 
I'm just <laughs> justify it. I just want you to justify it. Make sure, convince me that that's really what your lawful good paladin would do. <laughs> yeah. See, dude, dude, that is my exact DMing yardstick. If you can convince me of anything, I'll let you do it. Well, and that goes back to a college professor I had. Uh, who would at the beginning of every class period, uh, it was in a theater class, and we had to read a play for every class. And he would give us a, a ten question true or false quiz, and it's a ten question true false quiz. And you, uh, there, there was the answer he had as correct. And if you thought your answer might be different than his, you could write your justification. And if he thought you had a reasonable enough justification for your answer, regardless of what it was, you got it right. There you go. And that proved that you actually read the, the play. <laughs> right, and, and, and thought about it as well. I mean, because that's what he was wanting us to do was read it and think about it. So if we, could, if we could recall enough to justify our answer or form a position and defend it, then he won either way it went. Maybe I need to start doing that. I was about to say, are you taking notes <laughs> on this, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's certainly a thought, <laughs> especially on the final. But anyway. <laughs> Sorry. Tangent. Yeah. <laughs> well, DM Elizabeth, what's your number four? Okay, um, my number four is something that we somewhat touched on with our discussion in number five, the language used in the Mincer set, that I felt it had a much more adult feel to it than the Moldvay basic set. Mm. And, you know, I, I had been turned off on playing Moldvay because, well, it reading it, it sounded kind of babyish almost in its language. And Mincer Redbox does not seem to be talking down to the reader. And the language seems to be much more in line with the feel of reading the Holmes Basic or the AD&D rules. And I liked that a lot about going through Mincer. That's interesting that you say that, because if you've ever played in one of Frank's games, or know Frank at all, he is the most pedantic human being on Earth, but you never get the sense he's talking down to you. Yeah. No. Yeah. No, I'd agree with that. So, uh, DM Mike, what's your number four? I liked in the DM's book the section on designing dungeons, especially the tables. When I was reading through that, my first thought was, this reads a lot like the old Monster and Treasure Assortment 1 through 3, which they sold as a separate product. But I like how Frank not only gave you these some of these core tables, but then explained each table in detail, not just, you know, A means, you know, uh, magic, you know, whirligig or whatever. But he right. like, explains the meaning of the chart, you know, when should it be rolled, when should it not be rolled, it's your call, but here are some suggestions. And I thought that would have been very helpful for a new DM. And that's what I tried to kind of approach this from is the idea of a new DM because it's a little too easy to get into the rut of, you know, I've been playing for god-awful years. So a lot of it is just kind of, yeah, yeah, I already know that. Yeah, yeah, I already know that. But, you know, this wasn't written for me. This was written for the person totally cold new to new to role-playing games. Who might be scared off by advanced Dungeons & Dragons. Right. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Or, or, Ga or Gary's random dungeon tables in the DMG. <laughs> <laughs> or the wonderful organization and indexing of... Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, brother Mikey, preach it to us. What's your number uh, four? My number, my number four is the uh, solo adventure. Partially for the reason you gave for your number five, is that it's 
a player could buy this box and learn to play D&D by themselves. But more importantly, that solo adventure, it sets you up uh, to be a dungeon master in several different ways. Um, to either be it, well, it sets you up to be a player or or the or the dungeon master. I mean, you you you're immediately it, it shows you um, what's going to be required of you as a dungeon master. That there are going to have to be relationships between between characters, rivalries. Uh, that the bad guy is not always going to be there. Um, that uh, sometimes the bad guy gets away. I mean, the first thing that happens in that little solo adventure as they're talking you through is that the goblin gets away, and then it shows you how that can uh, change later because I, it st- that goblin's talking to Bargle, and it uh, you you learn about uh, uh, dynamic arcs between characters, and that sometimes allies die when Alina dies. Spoiler, and um, <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, and and then then there's this section in the, where you're reading this stuff in the town, and it's talking about how to. And what it does, it doesn't tell you to do this as a game master. But if you're reading it, and you're reading the player haggling with the uh, the armorer about uh, about his armor and about giving it back, you know, and no, I'll give you all right, fifty gold pieces with trade in, and then you finally settle on thirty gold pieces and trade in. So it, it, it's a it's a primer on how to be a dungeon master, how to set up a conflict, how to run somebody, and then by example, as it go as you go through the the the, the numbered entries and the box texts and the flavor text, you you learn how to run a game. If you even if you've never run it before, and from that first part where you're introducing, you were you were taught how to teach somebody the game. So you, you almost learn it without thinking. I'm learning, right? No, you totally learn it without. You know, they walk you through it. They, it's um, educational entertainment, entertaining education, whatever. I, I I would say edutainment, but I I hate that word. But anyway, um. It's a, a hate perfect that storm compound. Of, yeah. But yeah. But but the reality is that it teaches you how to teach somebody by example. So when when it comes to time for you as a new dungeon master to teach a player to inculcate uh, a new player into the game, you've already got an example of how to explain to them what constitution is, what hit points are, what strength is. Um uh what the little plus 2 by your strength means. Um how to characterize uh, non-player characters and monsters because the goblin was a monster, how to describe your environment because the the text you're reading is described. And then there are the box texts and how to uh, place a non-player character so that your players don't die. And then uh, they give you a healing potion before you go back into the dungeon. I mean, all the things that uh, a good DM will need uh, to, to help usher a, a, a burgeoning new gaming group into the game. It's almost hard to read that with 2015 eyes because that was when nobody understood what these things were. I mean, right. it, you don't have to teach half of that now because all the th- all the game mechanics that came out of D&D that are in every online M-Morg now, people come to it with, I understand what hit points are, I understand what experience point levels are, but you didn't have that in 1983. Or even right. just the... The Jackson Lord of the Rings movies. You don't have to. Well, how do elves act? How do dwarves act? Well, you know, you, it's right there. Uh, yep. What I also liked about the the solo adventure was, at the end of every little encounter section, you had several different choices that you could make, like the choose your own adventure books, and that also gave brand new players an idea of what different things they could possibly try in various situations. 
so that they're not just floundering cold. You know, it's like, I don't know what to do. It's like, well, gosh, I could try to talk to this monster. I could attack the monster. I could run away from the monster. You know, it's like, oh, so any of these things are okay. All right. You know, yeah. Right. And, and as a game master, if you've got, or as a dungeon master, if you've got the kid, you know, your players there and they don't know what to do, you can, you know, that's a, that in and of itself is a, is a kind of primer into how to tell them what they could do. Well, you could attack the monster, or you could run away, or you could talk to the the goblin guy, or or whatever. And, and equally important, it it just teaches you about the game mechanics. I mean, the second thing you fight is a snake, and you have to deal with poison and saving throws every round. And it's got three hit points, and you're only doing one point of damage. And I know this because I played through this today uh, <laughs> in preparation. Just, <laughs> um, but it's it's just one of those wonderful. The, the, I mean, uh, maybe this should have been my number one, but it's not, and I know why it's not. Um, and and when I said that the simplicity was possibly the greatest strength of the game, maybe it is. And uh, but this is right up there, maybe even tied with it. Plus, Alina's hot. <laughs> Elmore's Alina is hot with an AWT. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I look at that picture of the dude carrying her out while he's being chased. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> My goodness. Okay. <laughs> well, she doesn't do much for me, but you know, she she is very attractive. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, my number. What are we on for? <laughs> we're, we're in the forest, right? <laughs> yeah, the forest is a uh, con, not a pro, because of my uh, personal gaming inclinations. But we might. We're going to talk about this sooner or later, so I'm going to jump and get it in on my number four: the complete lack of deities and gods in the game system. I mean, and it's not just. It's left out by omission. It's specifically addressed. Uh, there's even a paragraph in the Dungeon Master's booklet about you may choose to add flavor to your games by adding mythological deities, but then Frank goes on for a paragraph about explaining how it's all pretend. It has no impact on what goes on in the game. If you want to say this is where the clerics get their spells, you know, Godspeed. But that irks me because that was such a big part of OD&D and earlier versions and subsequent versions when people weren't, you know, making movies about the demonic parts of D&D. Yeah, well, it's one of those things you just kind of have to accept the era in which it was written. Well, um, it affects the game mechanics somewhat. I mean, because clerics now are not getting spells from a deity. They're getting uh, through... Spells the from their beliefs. The strengths of their beliefs, yeah. Yeah. And mystic meditation, and that's just game mechanics-wise not as satisfying an explanation as the magic user has to memorize the spell from his book, and if he loses his book, he's screwed. Whereas, and also the gods, you know, people playing clerics, the DM can use the the bestowing of uh, divine spells every day on the cleric as a way of kind of subtly punishing them for improper behavior. Mm. And and, I, and I'm sure this was dictated by management, so I'm not I'm not banging on Frank for it. It's just I enjoy the appendix in the literature that D and D was based on in large part in the first place, and the gods run all through Elric. You know, well, it's mm-hmm. just another example of how scared people were of D and D as satanic thing. All right, so I I read a, a testimonial online just the other day. Uh, it was this week I read uh, a post from a, a young lady onto a, another podcast's page, Fear the Boot. I don't know if you listen to them, 
But mm-hmm. um, they, uh, the young lady posted about how her new husband uh, is a gamer and then she's finally just started getting into gaming because she grew up with those prejudices that game role-playing games were evil and demonic and satanic and it's not gone. That's the scary thing is that it's not gone. No. They just yeah. absorbed it into the culture and then – People said, you know, just went on. And now we have, you know, and over here you'll see the devil worshippers rolling dice, doing math. Um, <laughs> it became a meme in the original definition before there was an internet where it's a social construct that persists. Yeah, yeah a memetic, I mean, yes. D- DM Glenn from Thaco's Hammer podcast, um, he occasionally will play with his grandson. And he has oh, often right. said, yeah, he has often said that his grandson's mom does not like him role-playing with Glenn because she fully D&D. buys in to that. Yeah, D&D. She fully buys into the fact that D&D is satanic. And she's not too keen on other role-playing games either because she's just worried about him becoming a nerd for that. But for whatever reason, D&D has been singled out as that's satanic. Everything else is just nerdy. <laughs> and, and she's fine with him playing champions with Glenn where the Marvel Comics version of Thor could show up and there's no issue. Yeah. Right. Well, um, a friend of ours, um, his first wife was very anti-D&D, but had no problem with him playing World of Warcraft. Because <laughs> it's a video game. But it's the same thing. I know that, and you know that. <laughs> but in her mind, there's a difference because D&D is satanic, and that's a video game. Yeah, yeah. And she has a hard time reconciling video game with Satanism. Even though, <laughs> by and large, a video game would be a much more efficient tool to, to for, induct for a demon into satanic to, purposes. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so no playing D&D, but get over there on your computer and play Diablo. One of the kids. That's right. <laughs> one of the kids who lives down the street. Uh, uh, when my oldest is in town, and my oldest is about to turn eighteen, so this this is probably about. Uh, we're at the end of the run of this, but uh, I've ran a gaming group for them, and his mom. The first time he came over, you know, he had to come and sneak over to play because she thought it was satanic. And I said, I, I'm not gonna, you know, as much as I think your mom is wrong on this subject if she doesn't want you playing you've got to tell her what you're doing because i'm not going to have her be mad at me yeah and finally she just accepted he was going to do it now this kid had problems well i'll just say that he had been held back two grades in elementary school and he was going into middle school when he started gaming with us and his reading level went up his math comprehension we made him do his own math we made him keep track of his hit points i did not let him use a calculator his writing, just his penmanship, you could read what he was writing. Um, it went up just okay. because Voc- vocabulary. Him- yeah, yeah. And and the the first thing I did, first thing I played with these guys was keep on the borderlands, and they were cleaning out the kobolds uh, in in the ca- the caves of chaos. And uh, and so he his first this kid's first instinct. Um, because they said once once all the male kobolds are done, all that are left are the, the women and children, and he wanted to kill everything, the babies, everything. And so I stopped the game, and we had a conversation about what that meant. Aww. And, no, I mean, really. And, and it became a question of ethics. Mm-hmm. And we talked about it, and then they settled on, well, 
we're going to leave and tell them that they have to leave the, 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 the keep alone. They can't hurt anybody in the keep anymore or we'll have to come back and do this again. And that's what they settled on. But his initial reaction was just this ultra-violent video game, kill everything, get the XP thing. And I actually – you know, so I feel maybe I've affected him on a moral and ethical level. Get people to think. And, and I think that is something that role-playing games are very good for doing. Um, Especially considering other people's point of view. Yeah. I mean, that's role-playing, really. Yeah. But anyway. Wow. I don't know. Where were we when we went on that tangent? That I, <laughs> I think we're I, ending four, right, Jim? We got very serious. Yes, it's time for uh, DM Liz to tell us her number three. My number three. Okay. Well, I'm going to talk about Alina the Cleric. Um, <laughs> uh, Alina <laughs> was a excellent use as an expositionary source of information mm. <laughs> um, and also for giving a basic overview of how things worked in the game in the form of telling a story to the reader slash player um, so you're not just reading a bunch of rules you're reading an adventure short story where Alina is letting you know how the game works and I thought that was very cunningly done um, I was not terribly impressed with killing her off at the end so that the reader slash player now has to avenge her death. I, I thought that was kind of cheesy. It's like, oh, yeah, sure. Kill the girl. <laughs> I didn't but, like it um, from a storytelling standpoint. I thought that it gave your player, who your character, who probably lost more hit points. And if you didn't die, it's you had one hit point left or two hit points um, when you went back, he gave you a reason to go back into the caves. I think that they killed her off for a purely functional reason, which is you don't have anybody to go with you into the caves. So you didn't have her to help you. I think it was purely pragmatism, but uh, they, they cloaked it in this, well, it gives you an excuse to go avenge her and a reason to hate Bargle. But anyway, it goes. A, a motivation besides kill everything and take its stuff. Yes. Murder hobo. You could have, you know, fighter dude and Alina barely escaping with their lives, you know, running away. And, you know, because she was so badly hurt by the magic arrow wound, she can't go back with you immediately. You know, yeah. there, there were a lot of things you could, you could have done. It, it just, it seemed very tritely done to me. I, I didn't care for that. But I think the use of Alina as information done through storytelling was a you know, inspired sort of thing to do for the Mincer version of the rules. Much yeah. like the show Firefly, she went before her time. <sighs> uh, she actually influenced our game because my brother uh, had the red box, so none of us as players actually read that stuff until much later uh, when I read the rules to start DMing. So uh, to start DMing D&D because I was running other games, Marvel, fantasy roleplay, stuff like that, but he used a, you know, when I went back, I was, you know, when we said creativity is the art of concealing one's sources and, you know, uh, good artists create, great artists steal, or good artists borrow, great artists steal. Um, there, he had a, an original goddess in his game, and she was Alina, goddess of light. Uh-huh. And, uh, and so when I read that, I was like, you son of a, you son of a, we thought you were this creative madman, this diabolical genius who could create goddesses at a whim. And it turns out that you just took the dead cleric and made her a goddess of light and healing. 
Well, that's kind of cool because remember when we had uh, uh, Pete Spahn on way back when from Small Niche Games? Yeah. Right? That module, Shrine of St. Shrine Alina. Shrine of St. Yep. Alina. Yep. You know, and he took Alina from Redbox and made her into a patron saint you know, of adventurers. Of adventurers. And adventures. But he made no bones about where he got it from. There were actually oh, yeah. a lot of encounters <laughs> there that that were homages to to the solo. <laughs> so he admitted to it. Your brother was a bastard. <laughs> <laughs> but that's usually how that works. So. Well, Mr. Mike, how about your uh, number three? Um, I'll say I liked, which I'm surprised. You know, it being magic, you haven't mentioned it. I may be stealing it from you, Jim. But I like how. Menser deals with the reversal of cleric spells. It's much more flexible than it was either in Holmes or Mulvey. You totally did not steal that from me. Oh, <laughs> well, I liked that because I've always thought that that's a way of handling spells that I don't think people really do enough of. And it's like that, that not only allows different, you know, you don't have to publish 8 million spells. You can do modified things with other spells, but it would also, it rewards player creativity to do stuff like that. And I think that's cool. I mean, Frank's magic system met my minimum standard when magic missile automatically hit. Okay, I can play this edition. <laughs> it doesn't yeah, bother you that the, that the DM picks your first level magic users, sorry, the DM picks all of your spells that you get as you go up levels. That didn't bother you? At all that you get two spells. One of them's read magic, and the other one the DM picks. That didn't. Mm-hmm. You didn't have my brother as your DM. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't. A, oh, you can have sleep or magic missile. No, he was. A, oh, light. Yeah. Light. Yeah. <laughs> Go forth and be a lantern, a two-hit point lantern. <laughs> I'll give you message. Like oh. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I got something. Help! <laughs> well, to answer your question, no, that doesn't bother me because I take those gauntlets up as challenges. Give me ventriloquism and rope work as my only two spells. Well, let's see what we can do with those. Okay. So over to you, Mike. Um, my uh, number three is the art. Larry Moore, or, sorry, Larry Elmore's cover art is iconic. Period. Um, By definition, because they reissued fourth edition in the same red box art. Yeah, uh, and then when uh, a few years ago, maybe it was last year, I think it was two years ago when Elmore was signing at Gen Con, they had a, a huge uh, reproduction of that behind him, and it was gorgeous and glorious, and uh, and it was just, I mean, it, yeah, it is absolutely iconic. That. And the art throughout the book, Jeff Easley and Larry Elmore, it's beautiful. It's so well done. The art uh, – lends to it as opposed to the sometimes cheesy crappy art of advanced dungeons and dragons first edition um (laughs) which i'm not trying to bash it but i'm just saying the caliber of art in this book took things up a notch i'll I'll back you up and amplify because uh both larry and jeff's art in this book i like better than much of their later work suck up no no (laughs) you ain't gotta suck up to me man. who am i sucking up to (laughs) I mean, I'm friends with Elmore, and I'm sure Elmore listens to every episode of Save or Die. So, <laughs> well, Larry and Jeff would probably hate that. You know, it's like I, I only like, what, hey, hey, Mr. Woody Allen, I liked all your movies, especially the funny ones in the beginning. You know, no, yeah, <laughs> but I, not the sucky ones at the end. But no, 
it, well, it, may, it may have just been a function both of youth and the amount of the pen and ink illustrations they had to crush out because it's lushly illustrated with many, many illustrations. But there's a lot more personality in some of those than the, the more formal paintings later. That's well, all and that comes from a very uh, personal place for me because when I think about art in a role-playing game, I'm a Jeff D. guy. Um, mm-hmm. I love Jeff D.'s art. His, Hell, I his bought villains and vigilantes. Yeah, I bought Villains of Vigilantes just because of it. I still have the four-issue run from Eclipse Comics upstairs. Oh, nice. Um, Him and Willingham. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, that's how inspiring it was. Villains of Vigilantes was maybe the the second superhero role-playing game I bought. But when I think of a halfling, um, I think of Jeff D's depictions of halflings, and I think it's in the expert set. Yeah, the two little halflings and the guy on his knee talking to him. Yeah, and he, you know, he tried to make halflings, you know, tough. They weren't just little fat hobbits. They were fully realized characters with personalities that were different than Tolkien would have given or possibly similar to what Tolkien would have given. I don't know, uh, but I'm a Jeff D guy. So when I say that the art, uh, I mean, it's 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 not just lip service. The art in this book just kicked it up a not more than a notch. It was amazing. It was great. Well, I love my color trampier and Sutherland art, and I certainly love the uh, Errol Otis covers for Mulvey Cook, Basic Expert. But I will admit that when it comes to just black and white line drawings, Elmore and Easley can't be beat. So when you're talking the Mulvey Cook, Basic Expert, you're talking about the uh, the one with the uh, wizard standing over the censer, and he's got the staff in his hand and looking through the smoke, and he sees the green dragon and the warrior with yeah. the spear. Basically, and the, uh, he's seeing the cover I'm of the Basic I'm holding that box book. in my hand right now. The magenta <laughs> box. The magenta box. And if I open it up, inside is a sealed copy, sealed still, of X1, ooh, the Isle of Dread, ooh. and – an unopened bag of wax dice with a crayon in it. <laughs> That's the sound you hear right here. Oh, you're better um, man than me. I'd bust those open the second I got them. No, I got them <laughs> just to, to have an unopened bag because I've still got my originals. But this has the, uh, the TSR gift certificate, business reply mail form in the back. It's, it's Dragon Magazine. This, this, makes, this makes me happy. This is the uh, expert set from 1980. Ooh. Or 81, I'm sorry. 80? 81. One of those. 81, but I Yeah. Um, Otis's art is has kind of a 70s weird vibe to it that I Yeah, think it's is, supposed to be on the cool. side of a van. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, if I had a van, I would, I, I would so love to have that. Errol Otis is one of those guys like Steve Ditko. As a young man, I actively disliked the art because I didn't get it. And then as an adult, worshipped worshiped. It's both. very stylized. and Idiosyncratic. And, yeah, and personal. I mean, it 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 makes it uh, it, it sticks in, it sticks in your head. You can see a hundred photorealistic painters do that, and that image won't stick in your head the same as that Otis image stays with you. Although, full disclosure, since it was mentioned a couple episodes again, yes, all of Elmore's women's faces look the same. <laughs> but, but it's but, hot, so it doesn't matter. Alina Goldmoon, what's the difference? I don't yeah. care. Yeah. All right. That's it. That's all you need to hear. One's a cleric. One's a cleric. Um, <laughs> and cleric. <laughs> cleric yeah. 
<laughs> let's, let's don't start up with Larry because I, I know I him now. I love Larry Elmore's art. Quest got me through a he, tough time in my life. He's he's got it. He's got it. Gorgeous. I I love his line drawings. You know, he, he I I love his work. That the and you know the only thing I can think of as any kind of a criticism is that all the female faces look the same to me. Apart from that, you know, I can think of nothing to criticize about Larry you, Elmore's art. You and I am not criticizing that about Elmore's <laughs> art. I just know other people have criticized it. You could they say the same thing about bad faces. You could say the same thing about Jack Kirby, his greatest comic book artist ever. So this is true. Uh, <laughs> I'm probably You're telling me that Captain America didn't look just like Nick Fury in a mask. I'm just saying. <laughs> I've never been a huge Kirby art fan. I'm sorry. Okay, well, you're off the podcast, then. I, I realize that <laughs> so I hear you have an opening. <laughs> in, you know, the history Can of Can you talk high like a girl? <laughs> Hi, I'm Liz. <laughs> Can we just let Liz finish what she's saying? We keep stamping on this. Anyway, you were saying, Liz. <laughs> I was saying I realized that he played a very important role in the history of comics, you know, Marvel comics in particular, and just comic books in general. You know, and I'm certainly not dissing him for what he did for the the genre, but as an art style, I've never been a big fan. All his faces are flat. I'm sorry. <laughs> you don't have to apologize for preference with me. I mean, uh, <laughs> there, there are people who like uh, current pop music, and I'm not one of them, but uh, it's still popular. You say flat, I say mythic and architectonic, but... <laughs> tomato, tomato. <laughs> He, he kicked ass with headdresses, though. I will give him that. Mighty <laughs> hats. So I said my number three was the art, and that brings it. Why? How am I moderating this? Yes. <laughs> rain on your podcast, Because uh, I, I haven't gotten the cattle prod out yet to ring in the tangents. Wait a minute. Hang on. There. There you go. Okay. My he is a guest. is like that driver. solo adventure. <laughs> I mean, we're at an hour 30. We've we got to get this done. Yes. <laughs> um, my number uh, three is that uh, it really warmed my old school heart just to read through this again to get fresh on it and see all the good old-fashioned gaming conventions that even were still there in Redbox D&D. Uh, he's calling for mappers and callers. I just had to – I had a big table last night and just had to make them have a caller last night. Marching orders. Um, I can't remember marching orders appearing in the rules before this. I am maybe in OD and D. Collars uh, didn't appear in the rules before this, and I don't think I remember them after. Am I wrong on that? Collars did. I'm, I meant marching say, order. I know Holmes talked about collars. Uh, okay. You know, D six initiative, but initiative by side. You know, <laughs> just for, I you know I love that the simplicity of all that, and I wish I had read uh, Redbox D and D back in the day uh, more thoroughly and I wouldn't have gone 30 years pronouncing it melee because Frank even tells you it's pronounced melee. Melee. Yeah. Melee. Yeah. So that was my number three. <laughs> Does that make it Elena? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> my bad. Tomato, tomato. <laughs> so, so in an effort to please our guest, I'll try and moderate better. Uh, Liz, what's your number two? All right. Number two. I'm pool. Okay. Um, bum, bum, bum. In, the, in the DM booklet, um, one of the things that I thought was a very good idea that Frank touched on was what a DM should do when a player complains about the way you're handling something. Oh, now yeah. you are stealing one of mine. Go ahead. 
Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> um, I thought that was excellent advice, and I had not seen anyone, you know, really touch on that in, you know, other role-playing game supplements before. You know, and this is something that's going to be inevitable. You know, someone is going to have a problem with a ruling you make or how you adjudicated something, and... You know, he talks about, you know, listen to the objection and, you know, also gives some examples of something you could do to try to, you know, come to an understanding with your player. And I just really thought that was something that probably should have been included in all of the previous versions of BASIC. (laughs) And (laughs) Although I did find it just a touch lacking in that he doesn't mention bolts from the blue at all. That uh, random lightning strikes aren't an option. (laughs) Well, he does say be reasonable, and he may have thought that really didn't fall under the the reasonable. Or maybe he thought it was self-evident as reasonable. (laughs) Be reasonable. If they keep giving you problems, just kill them with a lightning bolt. The character, not the player. (laughs) Players and characters are different. See page 52. (laughs) Alrighty. Uh, Mike? Number two. I'll have to say I like how magic and spells were explained better than in prior editions, particularly when it comes to – it was always a hole both in Holmes, but especially in Mulvey, how do you get new spells? And Menzer explained a lot more of how you can – You know, it, it is kind of AD&D creep, but it does have things like you can have a scroll and copy it into your spell book if you find it. And, you know, et cetera, et cetera, that method of gaining new spells rather than the old one of either you had to find it or it just magically popped into your head. Yes, you become third level and now you just roll this d20 and your magic user now knows this new spell. Well, like, yes. Like a lot of what we've been talking about, though, rather than being vague, it's explicit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I may not always agree with the explicitness of it, but it is there. So, And again, I think that just plays more into trying to teach a total new person. Because if there's one thing that, you know, people criticize older versions, the Brown Book D&D most of all, is that it was written by wargamers for wargamers. And Mm. if you're not part of that group, there's a whole lot of assumptions you make there that most of us who weren't when we first tried to read those books are going, what? <laughs> it's one of the few times I've looked Tim Cass in the eye and called him a liar is when he swears <laughs> on a stack of Bibles that if you were a miniatures war gamer in 1975, that OD&D rules made perfect sense. I'm like, you're a liar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I never got into miniatures until after I got into D&D, so I can't honestly say. it. Uh... Oh, well. Anyway, that's my number two. Mikey? Number two, the design. I just talked about the art, and, and this the art plays into the design a little bit, but the design for this box set was as good as or better than anything that came out until they started putting color images in the books. Um, I think it was very well designed, very well laid out. I love the fact that on the back of uh, – they took into consideration that you're going to photocopy the character sheet, so they put a character sheet on the back of the player's handbook so you could go and just lay it flat on a on a photocopier and you didn't have to break the spine even though there was uh, a sheet in the middle 
all right, with the indicia. Uh, the rules in the um, GM's guide are, are alphabetically listed. Um, they're talking about, I mean, so literally alphabetically, not like um, alphabetically by combat rules, but alphabetically by rule. So I think the layout in general, the design of the whole three-column newsprint kind of thing, the placement of the art, most of the art happens to be, I believe, in the player's book. Um, which is the one where uh, people are going to need more drawing into the game, and I just think it's it's wonderfully done. It's it it set the it really did set the tone for the entirety of of TSR's um, softback line to come out. Every module, um, every I mean every supplement, every other game. Star Frontiers follows a similar format. Um, Marvel superheroes follows a similar format. I just think that this was this was the trailblazer. It, it's now a professional product, which is much love as we might have for Holmes and uh, Errol Otis. You look at the boxes and they're dated, and they could be fanzines. Yeah, yeah, especially Brown Book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Booger art free. Yes, <laughs> no booger art. Yep. I was going to say, you know, talking about how this was such a huge leap forward art-wise from, say, the AD&D books. You know, to be fair, the AD&D books were a huge leap forward art-wise from the original Brown books. So, <laughs> And most yeah. stuff that was around at the time, RPG or even Wargame-wise, unless it was from Avalon Hill or SBI, yeah. Most stuff looked like it was from fanzines. But this is the, this is the first product they put out where it's like... This is a product. Mm-hmm. This is, I mean, this is it. This is this is polished. This is this is going to be for sale at on Toys R Us shelf. Or yeah, something. at yeah. KB Toys at Toys R Us, which is where my brother got it. it was Toys R Us. So, and even within that, it's aged very well too. It still looks nice. It's still it's very clean. It's still very well laid out. And if uh, you know, I, I have the PDFs uh, available because I bought them from Paizo when my oldest turned ten. Because I told him when he turned 10, I would start gaming with him and I would start him off on basic Dungeons and Dragons. Instead of using the big old mess of game books that I had, I just bought the PDFs from Paizo or, or which, uh, anyway, one of the. Yeah, well, uh, I think it was Paizo back in the day. Yeah. So I did that and, and, um, so my youngest, if my youngest wants to run a game, I mean, he knows he's played with me, but I will gladly hand him, print him off a copy of the uh, the player's handbook and start him off by, well, read the read read the introduction. This is your first adventure, and they'll introduce you to each stat and everything that goes on. And because I do think it's a subliminal primer, sneaky too. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, my substitute number two, because I've been doing this a while, and I knew to have extras when Liz would steal one of mine. (laughs) Hey, I had some extras, too, that I had to go to, so you're not alone here. Um, Is that this is a fitting end to the basic D&D system, the Menser edition. I mean, because the the rule cyclopedia is really just a regurgitation of this, and a codification of this. So this is really the end of the basic D&D cycle, and I think it's a fitting end because it's a completely tight system game mechanics wise it is uh somebody just said almost a esque in that there's a rule now for everything and all the stuff from that that some people including me love about OD&D and earlier versions where it's very open to interpretation is essentially gone from redbox D&D. it tells you chapter and verse as you as we've already said like you were saying liz how to educate a player argument you know 
advice on how to do everything you could possibly imagine. Well, there was one more basic book uh, box set after this. It was the Black Challenger Rules. And that was and it basically, you know, like the old Holmes, you know, pointed you to AD and D. The Challenger rules pointed you toward the rules cyclopedia. But that but doesn't, yeah, that doesn't count. <laughs> oh, believe me, I could talk a lot about the Challenger set. <laughs> it went to fifth level. That was its only. That was one benny of it. But I won't get us off on another tangent. Yeah, one day we can cover the Challenger set and maybe have people write in saying, well, we finally found something that DM Mike hates more than the Gazetteers. <laughs> I don't hate the Gazetteers. Uh, I hate the Gazetteers. Mike yeah, doesn't Jim hate hates Gazetteers. <laughs> okay, so that gets us around to number one. Dun, 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 dun. Liz. Well, getting back on a tangent of things that Mike hates. Um <laughs> DM Mike, not DM Mikey. <laughs> um, the dreaded boxed text appearing in the sample game for the dungeon master to run. Uh, yes, Mike hates boxed text. Um, and, yes, many many people have strong opinions about the box text, Michael. <laughs> um, but. I do think that in this instance, it was a very good idea to have it to help walk a neophyte DM through their first adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, in yeah, a situation yeah. like this, you know, box text is not only helpful, but probably necessary for a brand new person who's not sure what to do. Yeah, uh, and this is unabashedly a first DM's adventure, you know? Yep. It's, yep. And for that, yeah, I, I can see that box text could really help. I abhor box text myself. Um, and for, <laughs> but for the same reason that DM Liz likes this, I like this because it's there educationally. It's there to walk a DM through uh, and uh, uh, what to do and, and how to describe a room and how to set up a situation. And what I would, what I tell uh, newer DMs who are running their first modules is that if they don't like the box text, it's there. You can use it. But if you don't like it, just make a little bullet point list beside it of the salient points and paraphrase it. Mm. Use your own words. This is the stuff, you know. Write out the the setting stuff that's important. You know, just make the quick list uh, of the setting stuff and uh, the action stuff that they need, and then they can say it in their own words. Because I, you know, like DM Mike, I abhor box text. Can I can I make yeah. a confession? The, yeah. The uh-huh. email the email that asked us how we actually construct our own adventures. As I'm writing up notes and adventures for my current campaign, they're very Spartan. Except I do write myself a paragraph of read aloud text because I'm a writer and. On the day of the game, standing in front of those people in a, a store so loud that it's like a small riot, I I can't summon that up as an actor. Oh, there's there's a big difference between writing your own box text and reading the box text in somebody else's to book. You. Yeah. Okay. So um, no, 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 no. I've I've written like there are certain times where I wanted something to be said in a very specific way by an NPC, or I wanted to establish a setting where I also will write a blurb that has to be said this way because it'll evoke a specific feeling or or response, um, or impart information in a very specific way that if I let myself wing it, 
I might screw up or parse it wrong. Yeah, that's DM notes. I mean, that's yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I have mild dyslexia, too, so if I just pull an NPC voice out of thin air, my players are sitting there and going, in the post-apocalypse, why does that guy sound like James Cagney? Well, <laughs> why, why does he sound like one of the weasels and who framed Roger Rabbit? I don't know why. That's because I just reached back and grabbed something. Hey, I, I had a tavern keeper whose personality and voice I uh, stole from Fox News in the early 2000s, one of their military experts that came on to talk about the Iraq War. You remember him, Liv. Yes, Colonel Hunt. Yes. So Colonel Hunt was lawful evil then. Yeah, <laughs> oh. yeah you red-headed bastard. <laughs> I made Mikey laugh. Uh. <laughs> yeah, take personalities and, and NPC voices where you can get them. Yeah. All right. Well, Mr. Mike, how about your number one? Okay. Well, just to be clear, remember our top fives are not in the order we like them or dislike them. They're just five that stood out to us because this is something I – the order from least to greatest. <laughs> okay. DM Mikey's a better person than the rest of us. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I'm more um, organizational, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. So this is hardly something I really dislike the game about. It's – However, it was one of the first things that stood out to me, and I know it's a totally personal view, and I'm sure most everyone will disagree with me on it. You're all wrong. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> This is quite the preamble. This must be good. I hate the splitting of the book. I don't like a player's handbook and a DM's guide. I like everything in one book. I to have a player's wrong. and a DM's sent section is fine, but I just – don't like two books. I don't like it. But Mike, you Can, know that players are not going to read the DMs book. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> sure they're not. Well, that was my next question. Can you at least articulate your argument for that? Why? It's it's a convenience issue. I, I don't think – I understand the intent behind it. I think it was so that players would could get involved with a lot less reading than whoever's going to be the dungeon master. Mm-hmm. But I just don't think that that worked out in reality. And that's, the- that's totally subjective on my part. I have no data to prove it one way or the other. It's just a gut feeling I got. Well, on the other hand, what if you're a brand new group of people who are getting ready to play? You've just got the one box set. You know, n- multiple people have not bought their own. You've just got the one. And having it split into two books, the new DM can have his or her book to flip through you know how to do stuff while the players around the table can be passing back and forth the players book if they need it you know I, looking at it that way i think it does kind of make sense to have it separate uh, uh, i like the psychological dichotomy that it presents that there is information that the players shouldn't have in order for the game to be effective and that information is in this book and yeah, the information I will say, that the player should have read both books. <laughs> yeah, and everybody I knew. And it wasn't even a matter of players trying to find out something secret. I just when, wanted to in know. In high school, well, yeah, frequently we always shifted being DM. So everybody kind of had to know the DM info because sooner or later they're going to be running a game themselves. I have to say that when we first started, my brother was the only DM in our group. Really? And hmm. Yeah. And the idea, the thought... You know, because I never played the solo adventure. I never so the the first time I ran into a rust monster rocked my world. 
both sucked and it was awesome. There are things <laughs> that I don't know what they do. And, uh, you know, as a, as a player, when you have read the entries to all the monsters, there are, you know, once, once you've been playing for a while, you see green slime. Oh, we're lighting torches. Well, how does your first level character know to light torches? I heard a guy talk about it once. <laughs> Chaotic neutral players. There was an elephant or whatever they want. <laughs> right. Well, is, is there anyone present who, as a young player, didn't sneak a peek? Okay, I, I've already I didn't, admitted. I, read I didn't until I read the books. <laughs> I, I really didn't until I read the books. Okay. And I had so much more fun than I think other people might have. I loved it. It was immersive. It was creative. It okay. was. It allowed me to draw pictures in my head and put myself into those situations. And every encounter was a surprise. Now I was beholden to my brother's mispronunciations. For example, for example, um, werewolves, uh, you know, lycanthropes uh, became became known as lycanthropops, um, <laughs> and I don't know why. Crunch all you want, anyway. Uh, but yeah, well, I, I do know that feeling though, because when I did start gaming with the thirty-year-olds at the Delta Library, um, the DM there, HL, he spent half his time. He would just make up monsters and throw at us. So yeah, yeah even though we had read the books, we still had that feeling of what the heck is that? You want to see a grognard loses crap? Take a monster, take one monster description from the monster manual, but give it the abilities of another monster and have them face it. And they will lose it at the table and tell you you are wrong. That is not what they do and blah, 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 blah. And then all you got to do is say, I, I mixed up some monster stuff on purpose because I'm tired of you doing that. And then they sit there and try and figure out which one they're facing. I, need four. I just yes, accepted that as a quest. You're a quest giver. I'm totally doing that. Yeah, well, in Menser's book, in the DM section, he mentions, you know, what he called an ogre jelly. Uh, you know? yeah. <laughs> Instead of an ochre jelly. Yeah, it's like well, it's like an old ogre, ogre but really, when you, once you engage it, you find out it's an ochre jelly, you know? Yeah. I mean, stuff like that. Yeah, that's definitely old school. Yeah. But anyway, I still don't like two books, and you're all wrong. So. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I, I got that part right at the start. Oh, uh, wait, I got to say... Bah! Okay, I bought it. <laughs> you kids get off my lawn. That's right. Here, Mike, do me a favor. Give me a good clean bah, and I'll just save it and edit it in frequently. Bah! There you go. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Mikey. I'm sorry. It's bah. <laughs> Mr. Mikey Mason, since you did yours in ascending order, as opposed to the armor class in this game, which is descending, yes. What's, yes. Your, what's your mighty number one? Number one is the undefeatable nostalgia factor for me, um, and and I know that that's just a personal thing, but it is total totally nostalgic. Looking at this book, every positive emotion, every wonderful memory comes flooding back. Um, it defeats the crappy uh, character class of thief, which shouldn't be there. It defeats <laughs> the the crappy rules for the wizard. Uh, sorry, the magic user. It defeats the fact that the only two actual kind of playable classes in the game of any use are fighter and uh, elf. At least in in the basic set, because everybody else is pretty much crap until after third level. Cleric doesn't even get a healing spell until second level. Right. Um, halflings, I guess, are okay, and I I had a propensity for playing halflings. All of the crap in the rules, all of it, um, every everything that might bother me, the 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 
D6 initiative where the, the, the two-sided D6 initiative where you go or the other people go or whatever, that all just falls by the wayside when I look back and I remember the first time that uh, I faced a lizard man or you know when I had that one string of crappy adventures where my brother didn't want to come up with something. And so our gaming group, we'd just roll first-level characters and then we would uh, be in the tavern and hear, oh my god, there's a dragon coming, which literally <laughs> happened. And, uh, and then uh, several of us would die and the dragon would fly off after three rounds of attacks and then we would go re-roll other characters and the dragon would come back and <laughs> that was the adventure and we played it because it was better than not playing Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> I mean so you're not going to top Nostalgia Factor for me uh, in any way shape or form that's a big thing that's why people's yeah. favorite edition of D&D and favorite Doctor Who regeneration tend to be the first one they were exposed to oh yeah, yeah. well Liz and I, it's the Holmes basic, you know, that's the first one we started with and that iconic Sutherland art, which covers up a lot of the, a a lot of the sins, like Mikey was saying, you know, of the, all of them, (laughs) yeah, yeah, all of them, and I love my Holmes, but yeah, there, there are some, some head scratchers in there. I feel that way about the original first edition AD&D books with the old covers. But when I get those out today, I realize I never read them, for the most part. When I had them back in the day, I was taught how to play. Daniel Proctor, when he wrote Labyrinth Lord and then the advanced edition companion for Labyrinth Lord, put it best. His his entry into AEC says, you know, this – the following is how we played AD&D back in the day. Not necessarily how it was written back in the day, right? Uh, yeah, and there, that's a real point, you know. Because I, gosh, listening to people argue AD and D initiatives like rabbinical Jews arguing about the Talmud, <laughs> and it's it's seriously, and it's like you know, just roll a die and get on with your life. Come on. <laughs> so you know, we could have killed this monster already. <laughs> uh, I think it's. It's going to be the same for all of us. Whatever you, with you guys, it's uh, with with uh, DM Liz and DM Mike. It's it's the Holmes edition with with uh, with DM Jim. It's it's first edition. But reading this, reading the the Menser basic set is coming home. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. It's like coming home after a long, long hiatus every time. So awesome. Well, my number one I saved for the end is going to be an email generator because I'm going to throw the gauntlet down and express the opinion that as a writer, just wordsmithing, I think Frank Menser is a better writer than Gary Gygax, certainly better than Dave Arneson, and better than Mulvey and Cook. And you could make arguments back and forth between his writing ability and John Eric Holmes because they were given different tasks. I prefer John Eric Holmes' fiction to Frank's fiction, but just game writing, wordsmithing, I think Frank is one of the best that there ever was. That's my opinion. I'm sticking to it. <laughs> if he was so good, how couldn't he put both sets into one book? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Word. I'm <I'm> sorry. <laughs> I can just see it now. Frank's going to write in. It's like, I wanted it to be in one book, but they said it had two. <laughs> well, Frank would have a heart attack if you said he was a better writer than his best friend, Gary Gygax. So we better not say anything. Oh, he's totally better writer. I'll say it. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, Frank listens every 
every episode that comes out of Save or Die. So, hey, if he has a heart attack, we know who to blame, Jim. We'll find out. (laughs) It's hard to get better than sand, crab, D6 hit dice. Yeah, absolutely. Just the sheer economy of words. That's the Hemingway of the gaming world right there. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Now, get your weapon and roll for initiative. Speaking of Troll Lord games, uh, that's (laughs) I... We we were? Yeah, because I mentioned about writing... I mentioned it at the beginning of the show. Yeah. uh, That you used to... Was it edit for Troll Lord? You used to write adventures? Yeah, I wrote some modules. I did some contributing work on Castles and Crusades and, you know, just mostly you know, grunt work here and there. That's the system when I'm playing fantasy games with my kids. That's the system I use. Oh, awesome. Just so you know. um, And it's because I did a, I played at a game day once and, and I was like, this is going to be such a knockoff of, of D and D. And you know what? It was the most wonderful knockoff of D and D with the (laughs) best upgrades that I'd ever had uh, for D and D. And I totally enjoyed it and got it immediately and took it home and played it with my kids because and playing that game with my kids was like you know how you can't go back you'll never play your first role-playing game again but i got to watch them experience my first role-playing game even though it wasn't you know what i mean Mm -hmm. yeah i got uh to see them have those experiences and that was the second best thing that i could have ever done and he means Uh, that because it's not like i haven't tried to convert him to dungeon crawl classics (laughs) <laughs> um, you know, one of these days I'll get to be a, a mutant murder hobo, but until then. <sighs> oh, hey, if you love halflings, there is an adventure all about halflings for <laughs> Castles and Crusades. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's called Shadows of the Halfling Hall, and I wrote it on a dare, because, or rather a comment one of my players made, and he, he told they were having to go through the halfling cantons to the north in this world and he's like oh man that's crap nothing interesting ever happens in a halfling village (laughs) really we'll see about that (laughs) (laughs) and seems you know people seem to like it so you know obviously i'm not the only one who decided let's have a very interesting adventure that mostly involves halflings so cool I think I played Halflings mostly because it made my brother mad. He hated them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't you hate it, Pete, when people arbitrarily hate a demi-human race for no good reason? <laughs> Gnomes! <coughs> what was that, Liz? <laughs> uh, nothing. I, I had a gnome in my throat. <laughs> no. <laughs> Please don't. It's, We've entered Gnome I Man's I dare land. you. Oh, <laughs> I dare you. <laughs> <laughs> to say something. So anyway, products of your imagination. <laughs> Good idea. <laughs> Let's head that way. In new Dungeons and Dragons, power is won by finding new ways to battle. I can feel the darkness inside me. And being completely dragon-flapping awesome. Set comes with spellbook. Ritual rites. Playboard, sacrificial dagger, and dice, dice, dice. TSR Hobbies, Dungeons and Dragons games, products of your imagination. All right, products of your imagination. So we're gonna—I mean, we've talked this thing to death. Do we need to talk about the design and layout, or just go straight to dragons? I thought well, I already talked about it. 
I really hated that there weren't those awesome pieces of art behind the text of every single page. <laughs> you know, like the gazetteers. God, I miss that. I really did. I know. So dragons then, Mike. <laughs> I'm going to average it out to a three, maybe a 3.5. Because while this doesn't, I mean, it's got some nice, clean rules into it. And if I knew somebody an adult that I wanted to get introduced to role-playing in general or D&D in particular, I would probably go to this set. You know, you, still, know the, you know the scale's not one to three, right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> okay. But, you know, I'm also always the hard-ass, so, you know, that's me. But I still like two books. Yes, sir. Er, bah. 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 Exactly. Elizabeth, dragons? Well... My my nostalgic dedication to the home set prevents me from giving this a five, but I will give this four dragons. I think it was a very well done version of Basic, and you know, like I said at the beginning, with the more adult sound of the writing to it, you know, that alone puts this above the mold face set for me. Just the fact that. Frank seems to be talking more to, you know, an adult or someone with more of an adult, you know, mind frame, as opposed to the dumbing down almost of the Moldvay language, or at least that's how it struck me when I got Moldvay. Yeah, as a version of Basic, I think this is very well done, and it it would be a go-to for me for someone who has never ever played a role-playing game ever, and you know I'd give it to them to start off with because much as I loved Holmes when I got it as an eleven-year-old, I had to read that book multiple times before I even figured, okay, I think I kind of know what's going on here. So yeah, four dragons for for Mincer. Okay, so we've got a three and a four on a scale of one to five. Mikey Mason, how do you rate this? Um, for a pure 82. nostalgia factor, from a historical perspective, this is a must-have. This is a five, just for that. Um, as a standalone game, this is part of a, a, a progressive gaming supplement. So by itself, you can play from levels one to three for classes that primarily uh, suck <laughs> at, at, until level four or five at the earliest. So wizards are useless. Thieves are useless. Uh, clerics are weak fighters. Elves need 4,000 experience points to get to second level. Dwarves are kind of the, by itself, it is wholly ineffectual as a game, wholly unsatisfying as a game. Without nostalgia, this is weak tea. Uh, from actual mechanical analytical gameplay perspective, having this box alone, it's a one. So you're giving it a one? Are we talking about this box alone or are we talking about having the next supplement with it? This doesn't have an adventure. Sorry, it has an adventure. It doesn't have the sandbox adventure. It doesn't have the Isle of Dread or, or, or uh, keep on the borderlands with it. Um, it has I'd one adventure. It's look. It's great when you're stepping into the other games, but without the expert set, this is fairly useless. This is a steer, not a bull. You know what I'm saying? They castrated it. This alone? Nope. One out of five. Okay. Five for nostalgia. One for playability. Because unless you're a fighter or an elf, it's lame. Well, <laughs> I'm 
I guess uh, if Mike's the hard ass and Mikey, damn it, I don't get to be the hard ass. Mikey is the super hard ass, <laughs> <laughs> the anal monkey hard ass. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna. I, I somebody call Peta. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna give it a four point five. I think it's rock solid, oh. and I'm only taking the point five off because of the absence of deities, which you know, gimps a fundamental game mechanic in D and D. So that averages like a three point one something. Three point one two five. Ooh. And I, no, I can't math like that. I had my calculator app up. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm sorry, I kept you guys from killing the curve there with your inflated. <laughs> your everybody's got to pass and feel good about themselves. You know, I'm just saying. No. This thing, this thing could have totally benefited from some sand crab. <laughs> I'm just saying, put some Hemingway into this bad boy. <laughs> Kill the players. No, <laughs> kill the character. No, characters. don't kill the players. Throw, throw in a bolt from the blue every well, now and then. You know in, in, in defense of your point of view, Mikey, you could say in any other edition, and you can play this game that way if you want to, but not in Mincer D&D because he tells you how to play it the way he but, wants you to play it. So you're, my, so you're my, right. My, and you could send your emails to the Saver Die podcast. Where, Mike? No. Um. <laughs> Mikey at MikeyMason.com. I'll take your flames. Come on, let's do this. <laughs> My first rodeo. I was born with a asbestos diapers. Let's do this. I don't. <laughs> that's that, that's the Dungeon Crawl Classic spirit right there. I got to get you playing that game. All right. Whereas this would normally be the uh, end of the show where we would start walking down the dusty road and playing a bunch of Bill Bixby music, we're not going to do that this episode. Since we have a uh, phenomenal musical guest on, we're going to go out on a song and have Mikey perform one more for us. After I've made everybody hate me, I get one <laughs> last shot. This is your chance to win them back. Pull Please them back. All right. This is a gaming story. This actually, I want to set this song up before I get started. I want to say that on the fourth anniversary of Gary Gygax's death, this was posted on his daughter Cindy's wall, um, and the video for this, and it's just me playing a guitar, and she and Mary wrote me. Mary's is his ex-wife and the mother of his children, and they wrote me to let me know how much this song meant to them. Um, and how much they thought he would enjoy it. And I officially got the Gygax family blessing uh, for this. It was like being knighted by geek royalty. And if you want to read those letters, I got their permission to post them on my webpage. So you can find my Gygax family testimonial at MikeyMason.com. Um, and this is the song that made them cry thinking of the nights in Wisconsin when they would call Mary the Dragon Lady when she would come out and yell at them for being too loud in the kitchen and going to wake the babies up. <laughs> it's about the best game ever, and it is rather unoriginally titled Best Game Ever. <laughs> It was the best game ever The traps and riddles were so clever And hardly any of our party even died Except for George, but he deserved it Cause he kept doing really dumb shit When we split his magic items up I swear to God he almost cried and when he came back in the game With his new known thief mage assassin 
we took all his gear again and sold him as a slave. Best game ever. I took his Santa Plus for leather. Then we hopped on board the plot train. Let it take us for a ride. But then George came back. And this time he played a druid who refused to leave the forest and always tried to start a fight and that's exactly what he did with this poor farmer on the outskirts of the town who turned out to be a god in disguise that's <laughs> game ever cause George's druid's head got severed and he came back in the game while we were going through this cave to slay a dragon. This time he played a barbarian who hated both our magic users, but carried a sword of magic flames. And when we reached the dragon's lair, he argued tactics for an hour till we fed him to the dragon. Then we killed it in three rounds. Best game ever! Seriously, it was the best game. I mean, what kind of barbarian argues tactics for five minutes, let alone an hour? He deserved to die. He was asking to die. Did you see what he was wearing, DM Liz? All right, that's a bad precedent to set. We don't want to set that precedent. It doesn't matter what the barbarian's wearing. He's not asking to die, unless he argues tactics at all. And as we wound down the adventure back in town inside the tavern, there was George as a half-elf, half-orcish monk illusionist. And as we counted out our treasure, he insisted on attempting to seduce the barmaid laughing as she cried and raised her fists until we all picked up our weapons. And as he died, he swore he would never game with us again as long as he lived. Best game ever! Saved a barmaid, slayed a dragon, got some treasure, raised a flagon, and we racked up the XP. George's bullshit in another game again. That is at least until next week because he is our DM's brother and her mom won't let us game here in their basement anymore unless we say that he can play. And yeah, I know you had to be there, but I swear by all that's holy, victory was never sweeter than it was today. Best game ever. Yay! <laughs> Excellent, sir. Excellent. Thank you. And thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for yeah. having me. You might even awesome. have it back sometime when you want me to make everybody mad. 
Yeah, we can cover we'll, the we'll bring Mensa you expert. Yeah, I was going to say, we have to do the Mensa expert. We'll have you back for that one. And I will rate it a one. You can't play it unless you start off at fourth level. <laughs> you can't play it without the basic box. This is, this is BS. <laughs> Not a comprehensive product. Is this all about selling the next thing? <laughs> oh, Lord. That, that's going to wrap it up for this episode. <laughs> See if they put me in charge again, ever. Uh, <laughs> See ya. On behalf of uh, on behalf of the Save or Die podcast, I would just like to say, <laughs> bah. Liz, goodbye, everyone, <laughs> and we'll Re-arc. see you next time. And we're out. Podcast is a production of Wild Games Productions in association with D20Radio.com. The Savor Eye theme music is provided by the band Mississippi Bones. You can find them at MississippiBones.bandcamp.com. Summer of '83 and Best Game Ever are copyright Mikey Mason and Augustus Diaper Productions Incorporated. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Save or Die.